Hello, and welcome to show number 2317 of Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. It was rather an inauspicious beginning because I walked in and the secretary said to me, oh, well, Mr. Daniel, the boss isn't ready to talk to you yet. Would you like a newspaper to read while you wait? <laughs> and I thought, well, I should have run screaming out of the door right then. Well, I had the chance, but I stuck around and I had a wonderful set of coworkers. I mean, if, I've told my wife that if I had the same set of coworkers in 1976 that I did in 2011, I'd probably still be working. And today's story is about our guest who had a very successful career in life as a blind person before the notion of inclusion became popular. We'll speak with Greg Daniel, who has been blind since youth, about his journey of overcoming challenges and achieving success as a computer programmer for over 35 years, and also about the importance of the support of his family, his teachers, his professors, and his employers. But first, for our tip of the week. This week's tip is a suggestion from Greg Daniel about something that is near and dear to our hearts, volunteering. I'm a volunteer, and my recommendation is we, we all either are givers or takers. And my recommendation is to use your hands and arms to reach out to other people as much as you can. It's not always about dollars and cents. It's about the satisfaction you get out of giving to others, whether it's uh, working at the at your parish festival or helping out in, in your schools or whatever it is. I, I, volunteering has been a huge a joy for me. It's also a good way to meet people with similar interests and similar intent. Absolutely. Volunteer work can be very rewarding, as we have found over the years, creating Eyes on Success. Support for Eyes on Success is provided by Insight.org, N-S-I-T-E dot O-R-G, and InsightU, providing accessible on-demand and virtual instructor-led classes programs, and workshops to support career skills training and professional development for individuals who are blind or have low vision or are veterans. Insight, a vision for talent. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Let's start by meeting Greg. My name is Greg Daniel. I live in Columbus, Ohio, which is uh, in the central part of the state. I'm originally from northern Ohio, from a very small town. I went to high school there, actually, and then came back down to Columbus for, uh, for college. Most of our listeners have a visual impairment. Do you? Yes. Um, I was born in 1952. I was a preemie three months early. My brother actually was born on leap year of 52. I was born in, in December of 52. So he always tells everybody that mom and dad started me on the ambulance ride home from having him. So I, I don't know. You know, you can never trust what your siblings say. But yes, I have what's known today as RP, retinopathy due to prematurity. And uh, I, I had vision, partial vision till I was six years old. Just beginning first grade, my optic nerve dropped off disconnected and most fortunate time ever because we were just starting to learn Braille. So 
I mean, we had kids that came to the school for the blind that where, where I was a student for 10 years that, you know, their vision changed. So they had to come to the school in fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grade. They had so much to unlearn. And I, I went from a, being a partially sighted kid in, as a kindergartner to a totally blind kid as a first grader. I had no time to sit around and say, whoa, what have I just lost? It was time to learn Braille and time to get on my pony and get educated. So that's what I did. Yeah, that was all natural for you at the time. I sometimes tell people that, you know, I was partially sighted when I was born also in 1952. I had glaucoma when I was born. Although I had some vision, I tell people I was almost fortunate to be blind and pegged as being blind at a young age because I was plugged into the services. I was used to not using my eyes for everything. It made, you know, the transition a little bit easier. If you went all of a sudden blind when you were 60, that's a bigger deal. That's a real big deal. And a very interesting thing, though, sometimes, you know, I went back to school as a first grader and I had seen the school as a kindergartner. And I don't know if that helped me spatially, but I can still remember what I did see, although I haven't seen it, you know, in in 60 some years. So you went to a school for the blind starting in the 1950s sometime. Did you finish all the way through high school at a school for the blind or did you transition to being mainstreamed? Uh, I mainstreamed. um, I was going to stay here in Columbus and go to a public high school. We had a mainstream program with that high school. Two of my classmates did so. And my parents, after encouraging me uh, from being the champion crier every week in kindergarten because of coming back to the school to staying, you know, six weeks at a time as a freshman, they encouraged me and said, why don't you come home to school? And I first dragged my feet because all my friends were here. but I went to a small town high school, and from day one, I, they asked me if I wanted to be in the marching band. I said I didn't know anything about marching bands, but I knew how to play a, a cornet, which is like a trumpet, kind of a squashed uh, trumpet, mellower trumpet. But I said, yes, that, I, would, I would do that. It'd be fun. And they taught me about marching. And so that meant that the first day of school, there was already a group of kids that knew me more as, oh, that's the blind guy in my algebra class or English class or whatever. They eventually knew me as, oh, that's the blind guy in, in marching and concert bands, choir, uh, glee club, uh, chamber ensemble. Uh, my brother played on the football team, so I knew all those guys. And my sister, I had two sisters, they were in sports, so I knew those kids. So basically, the short, short answer is from the fall of 1968, when I was a sophomore, till this minute, the kids in Shelby, Ohio, loved me and allowed me to love them in return. There was never a time that I ever felt like a lonely new student. And those kids that went to the big city high school here in Columbus said, we didn't have Fred one until Christmas vacation of our sophomore year. That's tough. Yes, it is. I mean, it's it's a whole different atmosphere, bigger school, huge school. And uh, I was so, so fortunate. The school, you know, I, uh, accepted me, and although the, the guidance counselor the year before said he didn't want me to come because I might get knocked down the stairs, but that never happened. And the Ohio State University put together a very nice short video about Greg's experiences in their marching band and the lasting impact that he had getting other underrepresented groups included in something that they had not been able to participate in previously. 
Support for Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners. Find out more about partnership opportunities by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is Greg Daniels' experiences getting an education, having a rewarding career, and what he is doing now in retirement. Well, Greg, as you mentioned, years ago in the 50s and 60s, accessibility wasn't nearly as big of a thing, and people didn't make such accommodations as they do these days. But fortunately, you were used to being blind. It was kind of natural for you, and that's the way you went through the world. And it sounds like you went through with not too many problems. But you must have run into some challenges at the time. Was there resistance, for example, when you tried to join the marching band in high school? Uh, not in high school. Um, they they had a great uh, system at uh, Shelby at the time. There were the top 60 seniors didn't have to report to a certain study hall. They could go wherever they wanted in the school. So what they did, which was a brilliant idea, as a sophomore, they assigned me to that study hall with those uh, 60 seniors, a built-in reader program. Because readers back then, I mean, we didn't have the computer, internet accessibility that they have these days with, even though there are still problems. I mean, but we did have recording for the blind, and I had some books with that. We, uh, and I had some Braille books. The counseling office worked all year getting books for the next year. I did have some books in Braille. Uh, but readers were a problem in high school, not the problem that they were in college. The college was a totally different animal as far as being a pressure cooker went. That was <laughs> that was five years, especially uh, once I got to Ohio State. For a while, I was a math physics major, and uh, getting readers for those hard science courses was really tough. It was a sort of a read once, test once, which is not a good way to learn, but that's what we had, and that's what we did. So who were your readers in high school then? Who did they get to volunteer? Well, uh, if I had a, a test, um, I'd go down to the, guy, to the uh, attendance office and ask the attendance officer, and he'd walk over to the, to the uh, study hall across the way and recruit somebody out of there, and they would read me the tests and write down my answers. And uh, I, I can particularly remember my senior year, <laughs> we had quite a, a senior English teacher who was hard-nosed, hardcore, and I took all my tests orally. You know, all the, the doctoral candidates always talk about taking their orals. Well, I took orals for a long time from the time I hit public school, mostly in college. College, all my tests were orals, and they were great when you're sailing along. I mean, when you're when you're hammering horses and getting A's and B's, ah, not a problem. When you're struggling, there's no way to sneak in and sign your name and put down a real a few stupid answers and you know bail out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can remember just babbling away. For 20 minutes, and then whoever's giving me the test, like in calculus, would say, um, well, what do you think about uh, proving the problem? It's like, oh, I thought I did. <laughs> but uh, uh, those were the tough things, really, that, that was the accessibility uh, of getting readers uh, going. I, you know, it was in classes. I tried to record my, my math classes, calculus classes. All those court recordings were was the tapping of chalk on chalkboards. Uh, you know, you listen to them again, it's like, I'm just as confused right now as I was before. Right, right. When I was in graduate school, I would ask my professors to talk or speak everything that they put on the blackboard. 
And for the most part, they tried, but that doesn't come naturally to people. And, you know, sometimes they would just forget and say, take this expression here, put it in over there, and you get this over here. And sometimes the class would chuckle, and I'd raise my hand and ask, okay, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. You know, in, in a lot of literature, and you read about, especially military uh, literature, you read about somebody having a sea daddy, and that, that means – or a rabbi, and as far as police uh, – uh, departments go, and that means somebody that that watches your back, that helps you out to, in your career. Well, I had a an academic rabbi, as it turned out. Um, I was taking a television course in pre-calc, and I took, went in to take my mid, first midterm from the professor was teaching, and I, I crashed and burned. And she finally said to me, "Look, you're going to fail the midterm. I get it, you know it." But she said, "I'll tell you what. From now on." I don't care what course you're taking. You come into my office if you have questions. I will help you out. And she was true to her word. And she even got one of those um, tracing wheels that they used to use to trace uh, sewing patterns, I think, particularly. And she that's the way she would trace dry, diagrams for me. Oh, that was nice. For the next five years, she helped me through every almost every course I took. Uh, some professors that were teaching the course were more helpful than others, as all is as always the case. But she was just a blessing. So when I learned most of my math as an undergraduate, I had some vision. Although you know I had my nose right up the paper, and in graduate school, when I lost more of my vision, I was still able to use a CCTV. But by the time I lost all my vision, computers were around. I did mathematics on a computer. How did you deal with that back then? Did you do all your math and physics in Braille? Yes. In high school, I learned in chemistry class how to use a log table and in, in algebra two. So I kept those log tables around and that's how I would do the, the at least the n number crunching. And computers were just coming out um, as I was in college. And a lot of them used canned programs for uh, like if we were – I took two computer courses and, and uh, they used canned programs and I got help with uh, – I could type. I had I had to take four years of typing in high school. So I was uh, actually I was the typist of the year at the school for the blind during my eighth grade year, as a, which was unusual for a guy. I mean, you know, most guys said, huh, who needs this? Right. Well, they found out about eight years later, we all needed it. But that really came in handy once I got a job because I keep punched my own programs on the old IBM 29 for years. So did you eventually get your degree in physics and math? Actually, no, I, did. I dropped the physics part of it because I got tired of being the bell, the uh, clapper on the bell curve in the physics classes. I mean, those guys, they didn't know what planet they were on, but they knew that physics stuff right and left, and he just buried <laughs> me. <laughs> I loved it, but uh, I, I was having trouble getting readers and, and books, and uh, as I said, so I got a, a, a degree in secondary math education. I did all the work, except I never student taught because by the time I got that far – I sort of knew the lay of the land. I thought, well, getting a job may be a big time issue. And as you know, in hindsight, it always has been. But I, I wanted to teach. And I've satisfied that urge by going into the classroom and reading Braille books and talking to first graders and stuff for the last 30 years, at least until COVID hit. So that has sort of get, kept me in touch with the classrooms. But so I got a secondary degree in math education then went to work for the state of Ohio for 35 years as a uh, COBOL programmer. 
It's now the Department of Job and Family Services. For 15 of those years, well, I, I started using a talking computer in 1984, which really opened things up. I started out by using an Opticon, and we had a Braille program after a little bit. There was a, another blind programmer there that I knew from the School for the Blind, and we had a Braille program, and that, that helped out immensely. But what really broke things open was the uh, screen readers, the early versions of them, and we eventually – uh, got into uh, vocalized and then windowized and then uh, and that gave me access to a lot of stuff and for 15 years I was the lead programmer for a a system through which adults could learn new skills if their plant for instance where they were working shut down and went south you know their job was done away with they could learn a new skill or a new trade using win or jobs or jtpa or the veterans program or uh, other federal money to do so. We were the central office for all the local unemployment offices, which, which is what they were at the time. We we did unemployment checks every night, about two and a half million records worth. But I was in charge of that, all the online uh, and batch programming for the training agreement billing system for 15 years. That was the happiest time of my employment, 35 years. I, I was coding every day, uh, and it was very, very satisfying work. And then that system got swallowed by something else. And <laughs> I uh, ended up my career as the ADA compliance person. Uh, other programmers would bring their screens to me and have me run those with uh, window eyes or JAWS, whichever one I wanted, and see how compliant they were. And they learned a ton from me just by standing there watching what the cursor did. Oh, I'll bet. I'm, because in order for developers to understand the accessibility problems, they either need to be in that situation themselves where they're experiencing that from day to day or be in touch with someone like yourself who can show them, hey, these are the problems. And that's what they did. They would stand there watching and they'd say, you know, I never knew how this really worked and I understand now what I'm supposed to be doing. It sounds like you were really very fortunate in pursuing something you were interested in in college and actually working in that field. What kind of response did you get from coworkers and managers in terms of getting hired and stuff? Well, you know, the first day I walked in, uh, it was rather an inauspicious beginning because I walked in and the secretary said to me, oh, well, Mr. Daniel, the boss isn't ready for, to talk to you yet. Would you like a newspaper to read to, while you wait? <laughs> and I thought, well, I should have run screaming out of the door right then while well, I had the chance, but I stuck around and I had a wonderful set of coworkers. I mean, if, I've told my wife that if I had the same set of coworkers in 1976 that I did in 2011, I'd probably still be working. You know, I could ask questions. They would help me out. They'd roll up their sleeves and say, well, this is, you know, this is how it works or, gee, we don't know how, how we're going to help you with this, but let's look at it and think about it and they were a great, great group of people. You know, I think that's really interesting. You talk about the, your colleagues being so good at work. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I picked my job at Xerox. I interviewed a number of companies after graduate school, and they just seemed like people that got together well. They worked on interesting problems. They had a good time with each other. And, you know, you have to work with these people eight hours a day. They ought to be people you enjoy. Mm-hmm. You know, the first time I called in sick, my my supervisor, whom I sat in front of for about 15 years in our cubicle heaven, uh, she said to me, look, if you need prescription filled groceries, whatever, 
you make a phone call, we'll make it happen. If my last supervisor in 2011 had said that, they would have had to call the squad for sure. It was just a different mindset 35 years later. Yeah, I think corporate America and companies in general have changed a whole lot. I mean, we had great experiences working at Xerox, both of us, for a number of years. But towards the end, you know, companies were getting squeezed. They were laying off people. Morale wasn't mm -hmm. as good. Everything was tighter. Budgets were tighter. It just wasn't the same anymore. No, it was not. And, uh, you know, I, I went out and started looking around other places because before the talking computer showed up, things were sort of at a dead end. And everybody that I worked with said, oh, I can work anywhere. Well, they hadn't been out interviewing lately. Then if the, that was the case because uh, <laughs> you, you learned a lot by going on other job interviews because they would be thrilled with your qualifications. But then they would say, well, you don't know what we need you to know about our system or something. So it was a very interesting place to work. I enjoyed my work career and I haven't slowed down a bit, you know, since I retired in 2011. So what do you enjoy in retirement? Well, I play in uh, the uh, Ohio State Marching Band Active Alumni Band, which is a concert band. That's one thing. I've been playing in that for 46 years. We play in concerts all over Ohio and raise money for scholarships for uh, students uh, now and down the road. Uh, I play in the hyperactive band, which is a smaller group that plays for wedding receptions, graduations, uh, tailgate parties, that sort of thing, smaller uh, venues. And there again, we raise money for scholarships. I'm in, I'm the event scheduler and uh, uh, the uh, record keeper for it. You know, once we go to a venue to play, somebody else is in charge because a lot of times there's so much visual stuff that goes on there that, uh, you know, you got to talk the organizer out of asking you to march down a flight of stairs in the dark or some stupid thing like that. And uh, I've been doing that now for 10 years. So I play in that band. Um, I'm my high school's email database uh, postmaster. We have almost 2,400 uh, alumni and former staff, current staff from my small town high school. And there's a newsletter that goes out every six weeks. I email the newsletter out, which also means I keep track of those email addresses. And you know, those are that's always a, a, a challenge to track those down when they don't work. Then you got to go on you know fishing expeditions. But uh, I do that. And I'm the a primary admin for my church's, my parish's uh, Eucharistic Adoration Chapel. We have a website that has a scheduler on there. That, and and this is a very interesting thing here. The company that ma that manufactured that program has a demo copy of Jaws. And anytime I have a problem, I describe the keystrokes I used to encounter the problem. They can duplicate it and tell me how to get around it. And if every company did that, we wouldn't have the, uh, you know, the, the accessibility problems we do now. For sure. So it sounds like you're very active even in retirement and you're making use of your interest in math and technical computing skills as well as doing some of the music that you've enjoyed since you were young. Well, yeah, and doing the music. I mean, when I started in the uh, marching band, why the librarians would read me the notes, note by note. I'd write them on a Perkins Brailler. They looked at me. We did this all day. And they said, we can do that. And I thought, oh, you know, I've heard promises like that before, but they did. I got them a Braille writer. And for four years while I was in band, they they did the music. And uh, then for 20 years after I got out of band, one of them uh, did that until she got busy doing other things. 
Well, in 2008, I think I finally hooked up with Dancing Dots, and now I use their music suite. I get a file from Finale, which is uh, how music is composed. They send me a file for First Cornet, and I feed it into the music editor, and then the translator, and then I emboss the copy on my uh, rail embosser. And I can have a, a copy in about mm, about three minutes, I suppose. And the beauty of that is, in the old days, if I took my Braille music notebook with me to a concert and it got rained on, it ruined the music. Well, now I try to you know put it away so it doesn't get rained on. But if it does get, you know, somebody spills water or something, I can come home, look at to see what music soaked up the water like a sponge and make a new copy for myself in about a minute. I don't have to translate it. I just have to make a new copy. Technologies and access sure have changed over the years. Absolutely. Absolutely. You are listening to Eyes on Success. 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 Now for this week's final item, how to contact Greg Daniel and how to find some of the music resources he's been finding useful. Well, Greg, if people wanted to get in touch with you and they had some questions about either computers or music or just wanted to connect, how would they do that? Um, I have an email address, which is gdaniel, which is G-D-A-N-I-E-L 0488 at gmail.com. Uh, they can call me. That, fine with me. I've got a phone number, 614-885-8311. Are there any other resources that you'd like to direct people to? If they're interested in music translation or, uh, you know, they need Braille music, they can certainly contact Dancing Dots, which uh, you can Google them. But that would be one thing. And and uh, I use a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm on Blind Tech and, and Tech Talk and some of the other uh, JAWS uh, email lists, and I use them a lot if I have questions. Uh, sometimes the questions work out. Sometimes they don't. It just sort of depends. I just want to mention, we did an episode about Dancing Dots where we talked to Bill McCann, the founder and principal. It was almost 10 years ago. But, you know, if you're interested in Dancing Dots, you can go back and listen to that old episode. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. You know, I, I will, because B Bill and I have been phone calling and emailing and Oh, ever since 2007, we're both trumpet players, and uh, so we share all those awful music jokes and uh, <laughs> have a darn good time. He's loads of fun to be around. And of course, we'll have all that contact information in the show notes associated with this episode, which is 2317, at our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. We'll also have a link to the video produced by the Ohio State Marching Band in which they highlighted today's guests. And as our longtime listeners know, our show notes can be very useful if you don't catch all of the information that we talk about in the audio portion of the show, which is hard to do if you're not sitting there with a pencil and all. You can find that information in the show notes. We're very careful about putting that together. It has all the links and contact information for the guests we've interviewed, and you can find it very useful. So we hope you're making use of it and trying it out. 
That's it for today's show. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about Braille Doodle, an inexpensive, refreshable, two-sided tablet for learning Braille and creating tactile images. We'll speak with inventor Daniel Lubiner, founder of the Touchpad Pro Foundation, which makes the device, about the inspiration for the device, its features, and the role it can play in education and in daily life. Thanks for joining us this week, and we hope we'll catch you next week to learn about the interesting Braille Doodle. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.